So tonight is the Upositor. So occasionally Sangha comes together, meets together in harmony to perform Sangha Kama together. Part of our training. The Buddha emphasized the importance of meeting in harmony regularly for the Sangha as a cause for good feeling to arise between the members of a community meeting together coming together at the same time leaving at the same time meeting in harmony Sukhasa Samaki coming together in harmony is a cause for happiness, peace in the community. It's also a recognition that we live according to similar principles, ideals. We have the Dhamma and the Vinaya as our guiding principles in the way we live together. So we have a similar standard of behavior of the Vinaya, Patimoka for bhikkhus, ten precepts for novices, eight precepts for laymen. We have similar goal that we're all aiming for the end of suffering, liberation of our hearts and minds from suffering and the cause of suffering. So occasions like this we're just confirming that we all still have the same ideals, same principles and that we can meet together in harmony as a group of people from different backgrounds even nationalities coming together can live in this way. It's been like this since the time of the Buddha. In the Buddha's own lifetime, he attracted bhikkhus from all walks of life, different castes from the caste system in India, the rich and the poor, and gradually people from different parts of India came into the Sangha. That's the nature of the Sangha. It can uh, absorb all who are willing to practice according to the principles of Dhamma Vinaya and willing to live in harmony. Ajahn Chah simile was the Sangha is like the 
legs of the millipede which we get on the veranda of this hall sometimes if all the legs are functioning properly in the right going in the right direction then the millipede goes along happily if one or two start doing something different then it's difficult for everybody or for all the other legs Vajamahabhuas is all working like the organs of a body, different organs, different functioning parts of a body. If they're all working together, then the body is healthy and happy. If one or two organs start having trouble, then it affects the whole of the body. There's just a underlying principle of Vinaya and monastic life is that we learn to give up some of our preferences and opinions and views and all the personal karma we bring in with us. We learn to set that aside for the good of the community sometimes. And that actually helps us in our own practice. It's a form of giving up, a form of renunciation. Nekama means renunciation. It's the heart of the monastic life and going in the opposite direction of lay life, which tends to be more towards accumulation, getting things, getting things the way you want, getting experiences, getting material things. Monastic life is about giving up, giving away and renouncing things, nekama. It's a barami, one of the ten Baramis that Buddha talked about. Barami means accumulated virtue, or we say spiritual perfection. It's something one accumulates, one develops until it becomes a part of your own mind, your own heart. Once it becomes a part of you, then it doesn't disappear, even when tested or challenged or put under pressure. But until that point, the qualities of the ten paramis, they tend to increase and decrease according to conditions, according to how things are going. We have Sometimes we have a lot of renunciation, sometimes not very much. But one way of looking at our practice is the development of parami. These ten spiritual qualities that define our practice or describe our practice, the different areas of the practice. We're trying to make them firm, make the mind firm in each of those ten parami. I remember when I first went to stay with Ajahn Mahabua when I was a young monk. We were putting on our robes, about to go out for the morning arms round. And he walked up to me and looked at me and asked one of his 
assistant monk said, who's this and where is he from? But he was looking at me, so he also wanted me to answer, I think. So I said, I'm from Ajahn Charles Monastery. Then he started a Dhamma talk as we were all standing there putting our robes on about dana and praised Ajahn Chah. First of all, he said Ajahn Chah's monks have a good reputation wherever they go and they benefit the religion. And then he started talking about dana. said Ajahn Chah practiced dana is well known for his dana says I too practice dana at this monastery we practice dana he talked about the importance of dana as the foundation of practice this is interesting as a monk at first sight you might think maybe there's not a lot of dana you can do we don't have many possessions but if you take a moment to look at it then dana is everywhere in our life it's all all over the place in a monastery and in a monastic community if they're practicing according to the Buddha's teachings and it's the first of the paramis it's the practice of giving giving oneself to the practice the form of dana making one's practice an offering an offering to all those who've helped us to our parents to our teachers offering back to the Buddha back to our spiritual teachers and offering back to the laity who support us Everything I have and use is a gift from others. One of those reflections we have. We can make our practice an offering. So it's a dana offering. Something is our practice of sila, samadhi and panya becomes an offering back to all those people who have helped us and are helping us. And this kind of reflection can be a way of inspiring us and energizing our practice. Dana can be performed in many subtle ways. Like I remember when I first lived in Thailand, I went to Wat Bapong. After a while I noticed that there was a sort of competing dana amongst the monks in the sense of how little they can take. So at the meal time, often if if food was short, and sometimes it would be a bit short, certainly there'd be plenty of dishes that didn't go around the whole sangha. As the monk, the food was being given out, in those days it was given out by monks, spooned out into your bowl. Many monks would say, no, I don't need that. When they saw a dish of food that they knew wouldn't go around everybody, they said, I don't need that. You can leave that for those further down the line. And that was very, very common. You'd see that all the time, monks refusing to take 
food rather than competing to get more they were competing to give up same with all the other requisites they're often kind of competing to see who could take the least which is a tote for me going there is a totally new thing to see in, in life because generally in life we're brought up to compete to get more for ourselves and we equate happiness with getting more but dana goes further than that and goes to a much more refined kind of happiness that supports meditation as well and I can see Wapapong was full of that people competing to give in the sense of maybe not take is a kind of giving same with chores like people would compete to do the chores do them properly and thoroughly rather than get out of them I'm sure there were plenty who might have wanted or tried to get out of chores but you could see there were plenty who were trying to do more when it came to group chores or any work project Lumpur Liam in those days he'd always be the first out to the work site and certainly he's always the last one to leave to always stay around to clean up whatever work had been done for the day clean up the tools clean up the the site of whatever project was going on his dana and giving monks would compete to sweep where nobody else had swept and they'd sweep there wouldn't be saying oh nobody swept this spot and sort of finding fault with others they, oh this spot hasn't been done I'll do it that sense of gaining something from giving more was very kind of much a part of the monastic culture and living like that brings you up it's the way you develop your barami you start being aware of your own selfishness more you notice how at meal time you're thinking more of what can I get is there the right food, the right diet for me today, the right kind of protein, the right kind of tastes, all the different sort of views and opinions we have about food, you tend to, towards that. But then you notice other people are thinking more about what can I give up, what can I share? And it puts you on a spot. You start to see your own mind at work. And you can see where Barami starts to arise. That talk Ajahn Mahabur gave to me about dana, one of the things he said was at his monastery he always made sure that the requisites are shared amongst the Sangha. Partly because he knew Ajahn Chah, one of Ajahn Chah's reputations in Thailand was that they shared, he developed that system where you have shared requisites, you have a central store and it's shared out the food is shared out uh, the funds of the monastery are put into a central store people don't have individual funds and that's always been a, something that General Thai Sangha were very impressed with the way Ajahn Chah developed that system very fair and minimises competition and jealousy and conflict between the Sangha members 
So Ajahn, Ajahn Mahabur was alluding to that, saying, I, here I also try to share out what we have. And I always make sure everyone gets a fair share. He says, if, if I ever have a, a different amount from others, it's not I take more, I always endeavour to take less. And he wasn't boasting, he's already somebody who developed his practice to the highest level. He was just talking the truth and saying that's how he'd practiced. He didn't always take a fair share for himself, but not that he was greedy and took more, he'd actually take less thinking about others. And this is how somebody with parami, who's developed parami, talks. And they've trained themselves to that point. They're selfless. They have dana, they have nekama, renunciation. And this is probably why you have these qualities come up first when you talk about the ten paramis, you have dana, nekama there, right at the beginning. Because they're important, particularly for bhikkhus. And they begin in the mind, don't they? Dana begins with a thought to counter our desire to get something or have something. It's the desire to counter that, to give up, to give up our possessiveness, our stinginess, our selfishness. Whether it's with our possessions and requisites, food and other requisites, or with time, giving up our time for others, giving up our physical energy to help the community and so on. And it's also the beginning of meditation, isn't it? Nekama, this renunciation, has to begin with a thought. We're renouncing sensuality. So you might have a thought, you want something, you have to give up that thought, that desire that you want to get something, some requisite or some pleasure, which would, if you leave it unaddressed, you don't do anything about that thought, well, it'll distract you and can become obsessive, it can become a cause for your mind to get very caught up. And you see that when you're meditating, basically you're practicing nekamabharami when you're meditating because you constantly have to let go of thoughts about all kinds of sensual objects. Even just, say, a memory of a place you've been, that's sensuality in one sense. You have to renounce that if you want to put your mind on a meditation object. You have to renounce ideas, imagination, memories, plans, all the different mental activity that goes on when you're meditating. You have to renounce sleepiness. If you're according to drowsiness, you're renouncing that thought and that state of mind you renounce in order to gain wakefulness. And on and on it goes. You're actually practicing nekama all the time as you're meditating. And that has to be reflected in your daily life as well. Because our daily life is part of our meditation. Obviously when you come into the monastery it's not always easy because we start off with raw material that's not yet well developed. And so we have obstacles and difficulties but that's normal. 
One of the first phrases in Thai I learned in, in staying in Wapapong, they always used to say, if there's no obstacles, then you don't gain any barami. <coughs> or you, if you have an obstacle, that's where your barami arises. You can say it in different ways. Obstacles mean here usually just means our own kilesas creating problems and suffering around different issues. <coughs> but for one who's practicing, you have to start looking at that obstacle, that problem, and saying, well, that's what I have to deal with. So it might mean you have to bring up dana where there's no dana, nekama where there's no nekama, sila where there's no sila. Patience where there's no patience, wiriya, energy and effort where there's no energy and effort. Determination and resolution, aditana, where there's no determination and resolution. Honesty and truthfulness and integrity, satcha, where there isn't integrity, honesty and truthfulness. Metta, kindness, compassion where there's no kindness, compassion. Upeka, equanimity, where there's no upeka. And these ten paramis are giving us simple guidelines of how to develop our mind in all situations, in all parts of our life. And we have to see, well, if some, somewhere we're lacking, then we'll start to have some problems, some obstacles, some suffering arise, well, it's a, a useful way to start looking at our experience and say, well, what am I lacking here? In the lay life, we tend to blame the world around us for our problems and obstacles. We blame other people, the environment, our life situation, and so on. But for a Dhamma practitioner in a monastery, we're starting to change that and turn it around. And Jan Chai used to say, you look at other people 10% of the time, look at yourself 90% of the time, because that's where the real obstacle or problem is arising. And we have to sort of start bringing up, using our effort, our energy to bring up some of these parami if they're, they're lacking in some way. Another thing that struck me when I first joined the Sangha in Thailand is just also the, the kind of basic kindness, sensitivity of the monks, especially to newcomers, especially the Westerners, because they know the Thais knew that the Westerners had to go through a lot of difficulty giving up comforts of home and different environment, different food and language and all of that. So I experienced a lot of kindness. And again, monks don't have a lot. You don't have a lot you can show kindness to another monk. But maybe it's just small, small acts of kindness go a long way in a monastery where sometimes we're feeling life is difficult, or the practice is difficult, especially for newer members of the community. 
I remember many times where the pot of tea or coffee or cocoa or something is almost at the end and people would give you an extra cup go without themselves out of kindness or give you some small requisite even in those days even a candle was like a welcome gift because we often were given candles and you run out of candles if you stay at Wobbapong very difficult to get candles and matches before the Upozita, the day when the store monk came and opened up the store. So you might actually be struggling with half a candle left. If someone gives you a candle, they say, here, take mine. You can say, hmm, such amazing kindness. They didn't have to do that, but people would always be looking out for you in that way very very inspiring to see and that's metta barami isn't it it's in a situation where you maybe you don't have much yourself but you're also thinking of somebody else with kindness the more you understand about parami and the effect it has on the mind you know, the opening up of the mind letting go of kilesa then it becomes almost like a, a challenge or a your way of thinking as a where 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 do I need to develop more parami here? How can I develop more? You're actually looking for opportunities to train yourself and further yourself because you realise this is doing yourself good. And they seem to understand that very well in Thailand in the the first years I was a monk. You could see the Sangha around. They're really thinking like that using opportunities that came up, just natural opportunities in daily life to do this. At Sila Parami, you're learning to be restrained in situations where the mind is maybe not wanting to be restrained. Again, often with the use of the requisites, where one wants to take more or indulge in some way, but just restraining taking a, being modest or taking an appropriate amount or in just relations between one one monk and another monk sometimes we tempted to nag each other or find fault with each other and our sila can quickly de- deteriorate we end up into an argument or a conflict I remember one monk saying Every time he goes into the sala, all he does is practice, don't answer back, don't answer back. That was his mantra. And that was his sila for that period of time in his practice when he was just working with not falling into arguments with other monks, different opinions over Dhamma practice or over the way the monastery was done, the schedule and all the different things we can argue about. He'd reached the point he'd realised the main problem was not other people or the, the monastery, it was his own mind that tended to answer back or add on to some comment somebody else would make, especially somebody he didn't get on with. So he'd just walk around in his mind going, don't answer back, don't answer back. He said sometimes he'd just fight to sort of bitter end to maintain that mantra and not say anything when he was tempted to 
argue with someone or make it make his own comments or give his own opinions. And he said he won. In the end, his mind, his own mind, learned just to quieten down and not bother about getting into arguments. But he said it took took a while of just training, like many weeks, months, training like that, just training to go, don't answer back, don't answer back. That was the mantra he used to keep his sealer. So on the outside, he was restrained, just went into the different parts of the daily routine, didn't have problems with people, even though inside his mind he had lots of stuff coming up, views and opinions, different kinds of, different sense of self coming up in different situations, but just using don't answer back, don't answer back. And he said after a while it worked. His mind started to get the point and it just quietened down all naturally by itself using this restraint, practice of sila. And then he didn't have to use the mantra anymore. He could drop that and move on maybe to a more refined meditation object like the breath or butto or just contemplating an ichadukha anatta. Sila is sometimes something you have to be creative with. Now we have the basic precepts and the principles of just being restrained, harmless in our behavior. Yeah, it's a samana, the definition of a samana is somebody who is harmless, body, speech and mind, they don't harm themselves or others. But how you achieve that, sometimes you have to have your own rules and that's still sila, your own particular personal rules of discipline. So it might be training yourself to say certain things or not say things. Or if you want, it speaks with negativity, you might have to train yourself to say more positive things, more kind things. Or if you're one who speaks too much, you might have to train yourself to speak little. Sila covers everything. So you train yourself how you're going to eat, how you sleep, how you're going to approach the monastic schedule, the routine, all the different things we do. You can have many, many kinds of personal rules how you're going to do things if you're interested to train your mind to develop sila and develop more restraint of body speech in daily life. And this is Parami. Once it once it gets established as Parami, then one doesn't have to try so hard. It's just natural. One natural naturally does the right thing in different situations. There's enough mindfulness there and wisdom to know what the right thing to do is. But at first one might have to struggle a bit. And that's the practice, isn't it? That's the obstacle. How can I train this mind to not tell the, the, the mouth or the body to do the wrong thing but tell it to do the right thing you have to work you have to try, struggle a bit there but after a while you might get the message and then things quieten down and the mind can go to a higher level and that's how parami works starts to come together and your mind keeps raising up raising up Kantiparami is one of the sort of the great hidden paramis because it is not something you can talk a lot about, patience. 
you know, something you you have or you don't have in different situations, enduring with with the difficulties of life. And, you know, there's so much that we have to be patient with. It's whether you appreciate the value of this quality. And it's always one that we tend to underestimate, because, particularly because the lay life in the world around us doesn't promote it very much now because our society is addicted to technology and comfort and convenience. You don't hear people talking about patience very much. It's more about getting what you want, when you want, in the best way you want. But a monastery is an ideal situation for developing patience. And if you really want to develop deeper states of meditation and insight, well, you're going to need patience. And what did the Buddha say about patience? It's the supreme destroyer of defilement. Kanti paramanta potitika. The supreme, that means the highest, the best. So it's a quality we should really look into really think about developing and how do we develop it we develop patience in daily life you're following the routine keeping the precepts putting effort into your meditation all the different aspects of our life require patience living simply frugality like modesty and moderation in the use of the requisites Patience with each other, learning to be at peace with each other, be patient with each other, even though we don't always agree with each other or like each other, but we can be patient with each other. Patient with our health, the conditions of this body, in the aches and pains, the changes in energy levels, feeling tired, feeling energetic and so on. Patient with the weather, whether it's hot or cold or wet. There's endless opportunities to develop patience. And sometimes the monastic form requires us to use patience and endurance. Otherwise we start breaking our precepts. Other times it just has to come from ourselves, seeing the value of it. When you meditate, you know, if you're meditating alone in your kuti, there's no one there to tell you how long you meditate, how well you meditate. It's entirely up to you. But you can see if you have patience, then you'll probably, your meditation will probably be more successful, more fruitful. If you have different mind states arising, maybe just the, the thought, I've had enough, I'm going to stop. If you can catch that and just say, well, be patient with it, try a bit longer, sitting or walking for a bit longer, maybe your mood will change, that thought will disappear and you can see it just as an impermanent state of mind. Patience there is maybe the most valuable asset you have. Patience with the different mood swings we have. Patience with our reactions to things. You notice if you're ever feeling particularly peaceful, 
whether you're meditating or whatever the posture you're in, one of the qualities that you'll have at that time is patience. You'll be patient with yourself, whatever your own moods and thoughts coming up. Uh, you'll be patient with them. You'll be patient with the, po- the people and the, the situation and the environment around you. When we're not peaceful, we lose our patience. You know, it's a sort of fairly simple observation when we lose our patience and we start getting very agitated, unhappy inside. If you lose it for a short period of time, well, you're probably just agitated for a short while. If it keeps, you keep losing your patience, well, you get very agitated, very unhappy. So they go together, peace of mind and patience. If you learn nothing else in the monastic life, if you can learn to wait, you might find that brings all kinds of obvious and very subtle advantages and successes in your practice. Just learning to wait, wait for success, wait for your mind to become peaceful. Obviously it works in conjunction with many, many other qualities. It's not a a dull patience or a foolish patience, but it's the patience of just being willing to work with developing all the other paramis. Developing the sila, developing the mindfulness, developing the wisdom and the understanding. And what supports patience, which is probably why they don't call it a parami in, these, in this sense, it's sata, it's faith. If you have some faith, some confidence in the practice, then it tends to generate some of this patience that will help you. And Jen Cha compared it to like the fisherman who's got a net in the pond or in the sea and he's got some movement down at the bottom of the net. He knows there's something there, but he can't see it yet. But he's confident, he knows there's something there if he just keeps working with it, gradually pulling the net in closer and closer, he'll get his fish. As long as he keeps doing it, keeps working with it, keeps patient enough with it, then eventually he'll get, get the fish, he'll get something. He can't quite see or know exactly what's there yet, but he's got the confidence to do it and keep going. Patience is like that. Once you have some faith in the practice that it it works, if you base that faith maybe on your past practice, you've had some success, some insight or some realizations, or just meeting other people who have practiced and hearing their story. Once you've got faith though, then you know, mm, if I keep at this, then some good's going to come of it. If I keep willing to work with my mind, let go of the different defilements, let go of the different obstacles, work through them, then I'll get something from this practice. So patience comes up from that. Similarly with effort, energy, weariness. Once you have some 
some confidence, some belief in the practice in yourself and in others and in the fact that this practice can work to help improve us to to develop some real peace and happiness and then it gives you the energy as well. Again, they don't talk much about mindfulness in the paramis, but the way the Buddha defined wiriya is the effort to bring up mindfulness. That's where we direct our efforts. If, and then you can, you never have to be at loose end in the practice. You can always be more mindful and more consistently mindful. We have moments of mindfulness, but we also have moments when we have no mindfulness or little mindfulness. And how do we train our mindfulness? Well, we, you have to use an object. You have to be mindful of something. So in the beginning, maybe it's just being mindful of our precepts, mindful of the routine, our duties and our chores and our the schedule in the monastery, being mindful of that so that you follow it, mindful of your precepts, mindful of what you say, what you do. And out of that gives a good beginning for developing mindfulness of meditation objects. They support each other. As you become more experienced in the practice, well, you can see, well, becoming being mindful, putting mindful awareness on a meditation object where you're keeping your sealer as well. Mindful of the state of mind. Once we develop more mindfulness, then we become more clear on our state of mind, whether it's actually wholesome and skillful or not. The other aspect of right effort in the practice is the effort to abandon unwholesome, unskillful states that have arisen. You can only do that if you're becoming mindful, if you're becoming aware of your state of mind. You know, if you can see the way you're thinking and you can recognize, oh, I'm getting too angry here or too greedy and selfish or too indulgent, too lazy or too deluded, caught up in some view or deluded way of thinking, not seeing the truth. Once we start to see that, then we have to do something about it. And that's right effort, effort to abandon an unwholesome state of mind. Also the effort to avoid it arising again. That means actually preparing yourself when you know there are different situations and different conditions in your life that bring up unwholesome states of mind. You have to actually consciously, mindfully be working to avoid that happening. That means it's like the one, the monk who was walking into situations saying, don't answer back, don't answer back. You know, he was practicing right effort in a sense. He was preparing himself knowing that he might be tempted to get angry with somebody, argue with them. So he's walking along and don't answer back. That's right effort to prevent unwholesome states of mind 
arising that, that haven't yet arisen in the effort to prevent them from arising. We also have the right effort to bring up wholesome, skillful states of mind. In the beginning often that's when we're on our own, when we're not too busy or caught up in activity, we're quietly on our own. It's consciously bringing up the opposite of greed, anger and delusion. So it's bringing up thoughts of renunciation, thoughts of kindness, compassion, forgiveness, thoughts of wisdom. You're reflecting on an Icha Dukkha Anatta to counter our delusion that's always seeing things as permanent, satisfactory and a self. These are basic delusions we have. This is bringing up skillful reflection, skillful states of mind, right effort. We have to keep doing that until it becomes a power of me and it's just that's the way the mind is working it's constantly abandoning the unwholesome and bringing up the wholesome and developing the wholesome more it just becomes a good habit of mind but at first we have to really struggle with that so we use wiriya and we use sati to do that we use determination aditana sometimes you have to just grit your teeth and say I'm not going to think in that way I'm not going to speak in that way I'm not going to act in that way once you've seen something as unwholesome you just grit your teeth and say I'm not going to do that or you make a formal resolution and say I'm not going to indulge my particular bad habits for, for a period of time So you, whatever it may be if you're a greedy type and you like to sort of siphon off requisites and keep them at your kuti and take more than is your fair share or whatever you might make a resolution I'm not going to do that I'm just going to take this amount in this way for a certain period of time or if you're one who argues or gets angry with people I'm not going to argue I'm not going to say anything I'm not going to find fault with others you make your resolution you might just make it for a period of time just say just for a month or a week I'll make my resolution I'm not going to do that and then see what happens see if first of all if you can do it and then see if it what benefit it brings you and resolution and determination is one of those qualities that brings the mind to peace again firmness where you're firm with yourself you know, we love to be firm with other people, but we also have to learn to be firm with ourselves. Not to the point where we cause ourselves, make ourselves explode or be miserable, but just being firm with wisdom and mindfulness. Firm where we need to be firm. We have to be true, such a truth true to the practice, true to ourselves, clear and honest with ourselves. Often we like to hide our faults from other people, but sometimes we even hide them from ourselves. We're not really recognizing, not really searching out the cause of our suffering yet. And such a means learning to really examine and look closely at things learning to really want to know the truth of something and not take a second best, just some kind of a 
opinion or view that may or may not be true or our perceptions. You know, one of our biggest problems is our wrong perceptions about things. We believe things too easily. We believe our own thoughts about life, about the world, about other people. We think we know, but often our perceptions are wrong. The only way you can change that is to have a sense of wanting to examine more closely is it true what I think is it true what I think about myself what I think about some other person is it true maybe it's true maybe it's not we have to examine more closely is the way I'm thinking correct in line with truth When we fall into delusion, then of course delusion is deluding. We don't see it. So you have to train yourself to look more closely so that you start finding your own delusions. The Buddha gave us all kinds of techniques where you're looking at something as very fixed and permanent. Try and see the impermanence. We make endless plans about life about our future about the way we want things to be we imagine how it could be and what it should be but then you see the reality and it never is the same as the way the mind is planning or imagining and look at that catch that the way we fall into wrong perceptions making things very fixed we make perceptions about other people we say, i know the way this guy is he's like this but sometimes it's not the case, isn't it? People, they change, they're unpredictable and they have different sides to them. Maybe we're only seeing one side. Maybe there's another side. The way delusion comes up is we see that which is impermanent, we keep seeing it as permanent and fixed. That which we see as cause of happiness is actually dukkha, unsatisfactory. That which we take as self is actually not self. We take these candors in short, we take the five candors as self. That's our basic delusion when in fact they're not self. In fact, the candors are just the candors, aren't they? They're just body and mind functions of mind they are just what they are but we're constantly grasping at them as a self so particularly perceptions we grasp them my perception and we believe it and this is the way the world is this is the way I am the way other people are we believe very easily very quickly those perceptions if you love truth such a paramin and you're looking deeper than that you're questioning and examining things more closely To do all this also requires metta, metta, parami. The whole reason for practice is because we're doing that which is the most kind, the most compassionate for ourselves and for others. We're training our minds, our hearts, to develop them in that which is skillful and abandon that which is unskillful. That's the most kind, compassionate thing you can do for yourself or anybody else. The whole reason for our practice is, is the development of metta. But metta in the, way, in the terms of parami is unconditional goodwill, kindness directed towards oneself and others. Unconditional, so it means not expecting anything from anybody. 
It's just a state of mind that is pure goodwill towards others, all-embracing, without limit, without boundary. That means you have necessarily, when you develop metta, you're developing a metta for other people and yourself. In spite of our faults, our calaces, our weaknesses, you're still developing that sense of goodwill. It's gradually purifying the mind of anger and hatred. If there's still people in the world, in the monastery or outside, that you find difficult to do this with, to have a goodwill for, then you have, that's where you have to develop your parami. You have to sit down and consciously see how you can bring your mind to a thought of goodwill for anybody and everybody. Even the animals in the forest we have to develop goodwill for. When they do annoying things like the wombats poo on your path or the birds poo on your kuti or on your possessions, on your robes or something. We can usually do it quite easily for animals. Why is it harder for human beings? Human beings are even better than animals, and yet we find it hard to have metta for them. This is where we're developing our parami, and we have complete sense of goodwill, all-embracing goodwill for everyone in the monastery, in our family, all the people we know anywhere. Can we have that? People we've known in the past that we may have had difficulty with. This is where you're developing barami, just to make it absolutely firm in your mind, sense of goodwill and not being willing to give in to ill will or hatred, rooting it out. In the end, all these parami come to support the most hard of the most hardest of them all. Development upeka parami, the equanimity. They're all supportive factors, conditions for upeka parami. This we are already developing. We already have, to a certain extent. If we if we weren't, if we didn't have upeka, we wouldn't be able to sit still and listen to a talk like this, we'd already be up and moving around and going elsewhere and doing other things. So all of us have upeka, but obviously it's not yet perfected, it's not yet parami. There's another quality to reflect on how much upeka do you have towards the changing conditions of the world around you and the life in the monastery. Upeka towards getting up in the morning. Upeka towards temperature, like when it's cold or hot. Upeka towards feelings of feeling tired or feeling energetic and agitated and excited or feeling very tired or feeling dull. Upeka towards other people and their habits, good and bad, what they say, what they do, how how much equanimity do we have towards them, towards what they say, the good things, the bad things, the challenge is there every day, we're challenged in our upeka, but this is the fruits of the practice, 
when all those other paramis are working together the final result is a sense of equanimity but not a cold heartless equanimity it's based it's balanced by kindness and compassion as well but it's just equanimity towards all conditions by seeing they're all anicca dukkha anatta So sometimes this is a good way to look at the practice, reflect on the ten paramis and see where we need to develop them and whether they're really paramis or just passing qualities that come and go in the mind. You see these teachers, these great enlightened masters that we're fortunate enough to have met or heard their teachings, these are the qualities that they develop to the point where they don't disappear even under pressure, under stress, under difficulty, they become part of their character. So I'll leave you with these reflections for your contemplation tonight. <clears throat>